Welcome back to the Living Ever Now podcast. My name is Will. And my name is Jake. And today we're going to be talking about the opposite of compound interest, which is diminishing returns. Oh, I like this. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about it too. Um, originally, this is a, I guess, topic from economics, kind of like compound interest. And they use it when they're talking about, I guess, productivity in markets. And eventually, when you first start a business, maybe you'll hire one person and that doubles your productivity because there's two of you now. Okay. If you had a third person, you'll get more productive, a fourth person more productive. Eventually, though, there reaches a point where there's a natural limit to either the market or your company where adding more people doesn't give you the same proportional benefit that it did before. So right. your, your growth is no longer linear and it's certainly not exponential. It's it's more logarithmic, but towards an asymptote where adding more doesn't actually help you. Right. That's, that's what I was going to ask. It's more logarithmic than exponential, that there's there's kind of a natural ceiling. Yeah. And we were talking about this the other day with just growing ourselves and how at the beginning of starting something, we're going to get a lot better a lot quicker. And then you know, by a, by a long measure down the road, we're only improving incrementally versus in the beginning we were improving a lot because there was a lot to improve. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to talk about is applying this economic theory as a mental model to lots of areas of our life. So I want to talk about the psychology of it, the self-improvement side of it, maybe a little bit of the philosophy behind it. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll start with just the, the basic example um, I guess I, before I go there, like everything, this works on the, the micro and the macro. So okay. the micro example would be if I'm working on a coding project, the first hour might be really productive. The second hour is going to be productive. By the time I get to hour six, maybe not as productive. After 10 hours, me sitting there hammering away at keys isn't actually adding anything to the product because I'm, I can't be productive for 10 hours at a time. I, my returns are diminishing. Okay, all right. And on the macro scale, which I think is the more interesting conversation, is, you know, I'm learning French. And at the beginning, I'm improving really quickly because I'm learning new words, I'm learning about the grammar, I'm learning about the syntax of their language. And I start to improve really, really quickly. But eventually, as I get proficient in French... It, it becomes less and less worth my time to put effort into it because for every hour I spend learning French, I'm not actually getting that much better. And I'd be better off spending my time somewhere else because I could be a beginner in something else that would grow myself as a person more in the long run. Okay, yeah, I really relate to this. I I think that um, jobs, you can off, you often feel like this too. Yeah, like once you stop learning new stuff in your job, it's probably time to move on. That's exactly what happened at the studio. It was, you know, aside from the sleep conversation we had um, and me needing to change that personally, it was also a um, series of diminishing returns that I was experiencing. Whereas like at the beginning, I knew nothing and I was learning so much about audio and blah, 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 blah. But by the end of it, you look at what you put in, what you get out and what you put in as soon as what you get out starts becoming even or less than it's time to reevaluate and kind of move on. I feel like, but my question to you is when you're faced with situations like that, kind of around a topic in general, how do you, how do you 
kind of readjust and, and stay, I don't know, on that line and on that mission. Like if you've learned a lot about something and it might be one shade of this topic, is it advantageous for you to kind of jump to another shade of that same topic and, and dive deep into one side of it? Because the way we're phrasing this, it seems like everything at the end of the day will have a series of diminishing returns. Everything will. Okay. Um, and there's definitely situations where you you are okay with those diminishing returns. And I'll talk about when those situations are. Okay. Um, but like you were saying, sometimes you reach a point of diminishing returns and you have to shift your focus. And in the French example, maybe you stop learning French and you start learning Arabic. And you're going to be a beginner again at Arabic and you're going to be improving really, really quickly at the beginning. And eventually you're going to reach diminishing returns in Arabic as well. But because you've now learned two languages, that changes you, the way your brain learns languages. And now you're good at learning languages in general and not just good at French. Okay. So you, you're actually better at French in the long run because you stopped learning it and you learned Arabic. Because now you can go reattack French with a more sophisticated version of a language learning process. Okay, cool. Um, cool. So what, what else? What about the psychology of it? And So before we get into that, get I want to talk it. about how, how this relates to compound interest. And like you were saying, how, how we can make the trade-off between the, the diminishing returns that everything eventually has and you know, the desire to have exponential growth. So in my opinion, the only time you should ever be okay with diminishing returns is if by continuing to work on that thing, it exposes you to the upside of some sort of compound interest. So music in your example would be that. Eventually you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns where you're not necessarily getting better at music every time, but by continuing to do music, you expose yourself to the potential upside of compound growth by putting your work out and having an audience. Okay, so yeah, that's an important part of this conversation because we just we just had the conversation about compound interest not too long ago and we were like, this is the mental model you need to approach your life with. But mm -hmm. at the same time, now we're saying you also need to approach it with this thought that there's going to yeah. be diminishing returns. It's the yin and the yang. Yeah, we have to, we, you, so the answer is you have to do both and the diminishing returns come from your own creativity right? At a certain point, you're going to get so good. Yeah, there's a natural limit to how good you can be. At exactly. Everything. But that doesn't mean there's a natural limit to how many people can listen to your songs. Yeah. So if your goal is to have people listen to your songs, that is an exponential possibility. You, you might not always achieve that, right. but you're exposing yourself to the possibility of that exponential growth. Right. And I think that's the only time you should ever be okay with with plateauing in terms of your skill level. Yeah, that makes sense. I get I I get that. But still in music, you know, I don't know. I guess I guess you could reattack. Like I could just dive into drums for a year, exactly. or two years or three years and be really get really good at drums and that could shape my music production as a whole and then do the same thing with guitar and do the same thing with every mm -hmm. instrument down the block. But eventually there's there's a finite number of instruments, I guess, at some level. So but not that a, a human life would ever be able to span. Mm -hmm. So if we took this example and turned it towards guitar, I'm not a musician, I have no idea, but I assume that there's pretty quickly after a few years of learning guitar, 
diminishing returns in, in what you gain from learning guitar. Like you, you always have room to improve, of course, but you're, you're good enough to make songs on the guitar. You're good enough to use that. And kind of like the French and Arabic example, you'd be better off as a musician as a whole learning, learning piano, piano or yeah. learning drums or something and, and it, focusing more on breadth than depth, like mm -hmm. compound interest, breadth, depth, they're kind of on the same, the same spectrum here. Um, and it's weird how that expanding your breadth actually expands your capacity for depth in the long run. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. That's important. Repeat that one more time. <laughs> expanding the breadth of your skill set improves your capacity for depth in the long run. Totally. I think. 100%. I think so too. And, and, and depth is definitely super important. You can't just focus on breadth because by focusing on depth, that's how you get the compound interest. That's how you become an expert in something. That's how you you, you make your mark on the world. No one makes their mark on the world by, you know, being, being good, good at, at everything. Or be, being mediocre at 10 instruments. You yeah, know? yeah. So I, I guess... Most skills, you should not let yourself reach the point of diminishing returns because on most skills, you're probably not trying to have compound growth. There definitely are a few skills where you should, but most of the time, I think you should you should focus on breadth and then have a few things in your life that you really, really try to go deep on. I like that. Yeah. I We had a conversation a long time ago about specialization. And on the podcast or just in general? Just you and I. Okay. And it was, I'm talking a long time, like probably four or five years ago. And it was kind of key in gaining depth in one area. And when you, <laughs> I don't mean to like, this sounds cocky, but it's not, I don't mean it cocky. It's like when you take naturally to a lot of things, it can be hard to pick where you need to specialize is my point. Like when you, when you do a lot of shit and you like doing a lot of shit, it can be hard to figure out where you fit in. Like where to go deep on. Exactly, like which exactly. But that conversation with specialization was important to me because it, it was like a clear indicator that I needed to pick one and not just have, like you're saying, you don't make your mark on the world just being a breath machine, like a breath machine. That's a hard word to say. Yeah, I'm struggling. B-R-E-D-T-H. Yeah, having a wide range of abilities doesn't make you the the greatest at something. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Yeah. And so you still you have you can have a wide range of abilities, but it's way more important to take a deep dive in one area and also realize that there's opportunity cost there. That you only have so many of those areas in your life that you can go so deep on. So like you're saying, I think that what your mental model is saying to me is an important reminder to not go deep on everything and that you can't be the savant of everything and that there are, there are like you have, a, you have a limited list of things that you can actually really go deep and be a master in. And I, I feel like mastery is one of the things that keeps me going. I, I think mastery is the reason – like the diminishing returns is the reason mastery is not possible in multiple or many areas. Yeah, no. Be because becoming a master takes 10 times longer than becoming half a master. Right. And I think that, I think that mastery though is just something that propels me. It's, it's something worth chasing is all my point was. Okay. Yeah. And so your, your conversation helps me to remember that I, 
you know, you want to be great at everything. You want to be excellent, right? We had that conversation too, but you can't be excellent at every single thing, I guess. Or I guess you can approach it with excellence, but you can't be a master at every single thing. I think it's a better takeaway there. Okay. Yeah. In the episode about compound interest, I think that was seven. I don't remember what the number, but it was called the, <laughs> don't worry about um, the eighth wonder of the world if you want to go listen to it. Yeah. But we, we gave an example about working out where if you improve 1% daily, that gives you an exponential curve. Right. But obviously working out is not exponential. Bench press definitely has diminishing returns. When you first start bench pressing, you're going to get better you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. After bench pressing for 10 years, you're going to be fighting for, you know, 1% gains, not over a day, but over a year maybe. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's important to remember that reality really, really doesn't like compound growth. Most things in the real world do not grow exponentially. And diminishing returns is a much more accurate model of the world most of the time. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you draw the clarification and distinction between the two of like if you have both these in your toolkit, how you approach life with the knowledge of compound interest and the, both the knowledge of diminishing returns? Like how somebody walking away from both of these episodes using these moving forward, or I guess how yeah, do you use it's, it? It's important to to know which things are even capable of compound growth, and everything else is not. Everything else has diminishing returns. Okay, and even in in life, like I, what I'm going to get into next is kind of the psychology of it. Um, so, so I'll say that for a minute, but things that have network effects, which we haven't talked about much on this, this podcast mm-hmm. lend themselves which to exponential growth. Um, but bench press doesn't have a network effect. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's okay that it doesn't, but you just have to be okay with, not trying to do exponential growth on the bench press. And once you reach diminishing returns on bench press, maybe go squat or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it it's just, it's unrealistic to, to try to have compound growth in more than one aspect of your life, to be completely honest. Because the amount it, it takes to grow an audience maybe is ridiculously difficult and reality abhors compound interest. Right. It's just part of the world we live in and using that in the context of living a fulfilled life and kind of managing expectations, I think is something most people don't try to do if they're ambitious people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a hard pill to swallow for the ambitious, but it's also important. Like real, real, realism is an important tool at the end of the day. Yeah. Like no one's going to bench press 4,000 pounds. Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get into it cause I know we will go round and round on, on delusion, but I think there's an, a, there's an important like part of the process in starting that where you maybe believed you could. Yeah, that's a that's a deep conversation. I yeah. don't know if we have uh, <laughs> yeah. the but capacity let's, for let's, right now. Let's get into the psychology of it. What do you got? Okay. So imagine you have been eating nothing but ramen for three months. Sounds great. <laughs> Not good ramen, like $1 microwave ramen. Still sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you go out to a nice restaurant and you have 
an expensive steak and okay. it's delicious. Yeah, and yeah. the first time you have that steak, it tangibly makes your life more enjoyable. Okay. And the second time you have that steak, it will make your life more enjoyable. But if you eat steak every single day for three months, eventually that you're not going to be getting the same emotional and mental stimulus as you did the first time. Totally. And this is because the psychology of humans is incredibly good at adapting to new normals. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the, the curse of the human experiences. If you brought someone who lived 10,000 years ago into today, you know, the first month of their life here in this new world would be incredible. Mm-hmm. But after a year or two, it would just be normal again. Yeah. And all the amazing, wondrous things we have in our world today, like humans are so good at adapting to the new normal. And we have to be very, very careful in our lives what we choose to become normal. Like we can choose to have steak every single night for dinner, but maybe we shouldn't because choosing that makes it normal and making it normal kind of makes it lose its its value as a reward in our brain. No, totally, dude. I'm super conscious of this. I know I've talked to you about this before, but um, just that absence makes the heart grow fonder is a, is a common theme for me and that you know I don't want to overdo the things I really like because I want to still really like them so yeah. so so like having a steak dinner for example I don't eat steak every night because if I ate steak every night I wouldn't appreciate having a steak when I do have a steak yeah I think that's the kind of the point and most people I I don't think have that perspective maybe they do and I'm just obviously saying things that are obvious, but, um, <laughs> I don't know, honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know to be the fair judge. I just I, know I've I'm never, super yeah, conscious. I, of I've it. never like been intentional about what I choose to be normal. Like things just kind of have become normal really th- through my life. And I'm realizing more and more like, luckily, I, I mean, I, my natural preference is for things that are simple and like, I enjoy minimalism and that became my normal. I could have gone a different route and unintentionally fallen into, you know, expensive things becoming normal. And then you start this hedonic treadmill where Mm -hmm. the expensive things become normal. So you have to buy more expensive things and then those things become normal. So, you know, pretty soon you're on an island, you know, I don't know, buying jets or whatever. I don't know. I, I felt like mine came from burning out in music one time and just feeling like I had to make a song every single day and, and just putting out a song every week. And I just wasn't ready for that at the time. And it was, I was overextending myself and I, and I ended up going on a like six month hiatus from music because I just like not even touching it because I just didn't like it. Music as much. became too normal for you? No, it became um, not fun anymore. And so I got this concept of being conscious about what I, what I have distance from because of the fact that I was too close to it. And then it no longer became fun. It became, it almost, yeah, it was no longer like the exciting thing I was doing to spend my time and cathartic. It was just like work. And I think that made me conscious of other areas of my life to now where I'm conscious of things like the steak dinner. Um, and I still, you know, it, I think it's different when you get better at something and I could, I think I could probably make music every day now, but I still don't. I, I still make music when I want to make music. I mm-hmm. think I don't know if that's the best approach, but 
I hadn't thought about it in terms of, of burning out, but I, that's that, why that, I wanted to bring that, that up. That kind of works in the, the working out example too. If you, if you try to break through that plateau of the diminishing returns, you're going to get injured and you're going to see negative returns. And that's kind of like burning out in music. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, that's the last thing I want is for the thing I'm most passionate about in this life to not be fun anymore. So I had to take drastic measures to correct that behavior. What are those measures? Just, just being conscious of nearness and, and being conscious of my own wick and not letting it burn too, too short. If that makes sense. It, has that been a hard balance for you to not anymore? No. What I guess initially in learning that was, that was probably all my freshman year. So we're talking like four, four years ago. Um, initially it was like, Oh, do I, you know, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to make music anymore, period. And that just propelled me to learn how to deal with it, I guess. And so from, from that point on, I gave myself distance when I felt I needed it. And I don't know how else to tell anybody prescriptively other than when you feel like you're getting a little burnt, that's the time to say, take a step back. Do you ever still feel like you get burnt? No, because I just have such that, such that balance now that I don't ever go too hard. It feels like, but during the pandemic, I, I was frustrated because there was many times when I didn't want to make music and I felt like I needed to make music. Um, what do you think makes you feel like you need to make music? Finishing an album. As soon as you, as soon as you set up the fact that you're going to make an album, I think there's, I, I put a personally I put a lot of pressure on myself, but, but you know, I think that's where that came from. I, that kind of goes back to the expectation management thing with mm -hmm. the growth. Isn't always going to be compound. Yeah, no, it's not. And some, sometimes the best way to grow is really counterintuitive and it's not working on something like, like for example, music or being a creative of any sort, when you spend, when you're too close to something, sometimes you don't have the best perspective and the best way for you to grow from that situation as a creative is to take a step back and separate yourself from the thing and then come back with fresh eyes whenever, however long that means for you. And then you can see the situation often in a new light. Like sometimes when you're writing a song, or you make a song and you think it's really dope that night and then you come back the next day and you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that song's trash. But, and that's okay. That's okay. That's part of the process. But some, like that, what I'm saying is sometimes the best growth is, is not, it's counterintuitive because you're not actually working on it. It's, it's seeing other things. It's getting fresh perspective. It's changing the look in your eye. It's, and, and I think it's cool. So how did you you come to the absence makes the heart grow fonder thing? Has has that that's actually something? That's actually a seduction principle. It's seduction from, like dating, like seduction in everything. Seduction in law, seduction in business, negotiation, seduction relationships. Yeah, okay. but filling the need of others. Um, it's it's like I, I think a fundamental part of our human nature. It also is we want what we can't have. Yeah, if you're around someone too much, they get diminishing returns on you but yeah if you're only around them once yeah. a month and every time they see you so i don't mean to go i don't want to go like too deep and it's not like i don't know it's not not from a power hungry place at all but just being aware of the fact that the however like people get used to, like you said people adapt to their setting they get used to what's around them and being on the edge of that i think is seduction like being aware and on the edge of fondness 
is seduction when when you're around too much you kind of feel it when you're when you're around not enough you also feel it so playing that edge like in a relationship or or um in negotiations like having too much to say sometimes is really bad in negotiations because you want people to want to give you what they you want but really you have to be really hyper aware of what they want to succeed in negotiation so it's it's interesting. I don't know. There's a lot of angles to seduction, but that principle comes from me reading about seduction and power uh, via Robert Greene and some other books on seduction. And then that that's where the that's where distance makes the heart grow fonder comes from from my own experience. Interesting. Yeah, and then that applied somehow to music. <laughs> so, I mean, like that's interesting that I got that idea from music, but it helps me not burn out. Or I got that idea from a book, but it helps me not burn out in my own music and my own creativity. That's kind of the power of mental models, I guess. Totally, yeah. They come from one field and they're generally applicable. And I also don't always, I feel like I actually don't always fully understand mental models. And so I kind of wrap my own reasoning around things that I hear and they help me in my own life because I've kind of my honestly, like more or less made up what the fuck it means and then applied that dictation on standards that happen in my setting and then and then I have solutions but then like I'll, I'll talk to somebody else and they're like what, <laughs> like, what are you, that, that's not what they were saying at all <laughs> do you think that happened with this mental model or I think that's kind of like what I'm talking about yeah it's like no I, I think this one hold, holds up yeah this but like it, you see how I kind of just like drew this conclusion out of nowhere that's the point of mental models. Oh, okay. Well, then maybe maybe I'm doing it right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think you're on on the right page. <laughs> All right. I don't mean to derail. Can we no. get back? I I think that that that's that's most of it. I guess this is all 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 pretty standard stuff. I I don't know if it was Aristotle. Uh huh. Who I don't remember was big on um everything in moderation. It sounds um, it sounds like Aristotle, but I'm not sure. Yeah, what a guy that guy, whatever, maybe. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of the big takeaway here is you can't go all in all the time. You can't you can't try to be excellent in everything all the time, or depending on your definition of excellence. Or True. What, yeah. You have to have moderation. You you can't have a steak dinner every night because then steak loses its value. And not only is it detrimental to your output in the world it's detrimental to how you see your relationship to that output because you won't even enjoy it that's what you're talking about with the burnout here not only will you not produce as many songs you're not going to enjoy producing any songs which is a factor also that circularly back into productivity like the enjoyment Mm -hmm. means more production it's all about feedback loops Yeah. yeah and that's crazy yeah that's that's really crazy yeah, everything in moderation, man. That's a good principle. I guess that's why it's been around for two thousand years. It really is a good principle because yeah, and and even like in an indulgent space and a creative space, we have to realize that all that we have, at least for what I can see, is finite. Like all of our organic things that make up who we are, like creativity, inspiration. Um, I thought you meant organic, like the carbon in our bodies. I was like, I guess that's kind of finite. <laughs> no, that's finite too, for sure. But no, I guess I guess the intangibles, I guess. I don't know what those are. Like creativity you think is finite? A hundred percent. And I I don't think there's like an end cap to it, like in a macro sense, but I think in every 
spending of it, we have to realize that we have a tank and it empties Mm -hmm. and it will refuel with sleep. Check out our last episode. (laughs) It will refuel, but it has an empty tank status as well. And we have to be conscious of that. And and same with our gluttony at a certain level um, and in our indulgence in more hedonic pleasures like a steak, right? Or surface level hedonic pleasures like a steak. Mm -hmm. We have to realize too that if we fill our tank with steaks, that like it's hard to fill your tank with steak. <laughs> oh, what the heck did? I, it's hard to fill like fulfillment with with those baseline pleasures, and that and right. that's kind of what this conversation begs the question of: is if steaks aren't going to fill you up because that becomes the new normal, and then yes. you know, eventually productivity becomes the new normal, and that doesn't fill you up, and mm-hmm. relationships. Are it's probably the answer of like these these fundamental human things that that don't have diminishing returns. I think you could put as much effort into your relationships as possible, mm-hmm. and it's harder to find the diminishing returns on that. Even though the principle that you have absence makes the heart grow fonder, that's true to a certain extent. But you wouldn't want to do that with your wife. Yeah. So so like the 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 nuance to that conversation is is true what you're saying but it's also true that like I do kind of want to do that with my wife I do want to kind of like keep seduction yeah, like, alive you you can reach diminishing returns in your relationship with your wife like if you if you guys both and really what it turns into on a long-term basis is complacency how do you keep things fresh mm-hmm. is is a more about like you know you have to think about not only what you're doing to indulge yourself but then like how is this relationship indulging like have we had reckless sex? somewhere crazy in a while have we gone on a really cute date (laughs) have we gone on a really cute date have have i surprised her with something have i have i been away from with my boys for for a weekend trip and has she been away with her girls for a weekend trip in a while like how how have we played with the relationship dynamics here to keep things fresh and that's that's kind of what i think about long term in a relationship um but definitely in the short term like i guess kind of getting especially in getting your the the person you seek interested in you, it's definitely about playing with that distance okay. and playing with that shit. I don't know. It, it's so annoying. <laughs> it's all, it's all like a game at the end of the day, but at the same time, like I think it's important to play the game. Even like the, what I'm saying, like a long, like long-term in the relationship, because I think when you stop playing the game is when you stop really keeping things fun together. And like, I think it's a, I think it's a form of love to, to do that. In my opinion, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've never been married, so it's hard <laughs> I've been to tell. Either. <laughs> I've been in long-term relationships, though, and I think that like where I've fallen short is when I stopped being so driven to excite and and you know I'm not talking about like fucking going out every weekend and doing something crazy every weekend, but it's you you get a feel for it when you're in a relationship. You know when you haven't been out in en- long enough and you know when you, you haven't done a trip with your boys and gotten away from your girl and you know when you spend spend too much time together and when you should you, s- I, you start to hate them, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So like you you just have to you have to be conscious. It's yeah. being it's all about being aware. Yeah. And and being honest with the other person, I guess. I yeah. didn't mean for this to turn into a relationship advice <laughs> episode. Two single guys tell you how to get women. <laughs> All right, but th- that wraps it up for me, man. You got anything else? No. I'll, although although just like I guess go back to that part where we talk about how compound interest and diminishing returns relate to one another. 
that the approach is with a compound interest, uh, like mindset, but that, that they, that do you, do you think there's a, a less mathy or economic equivalent to this that, that people would understand? Cause I don't know. It's really, like, it's really clear for us, right? Like we come from more of a mathy diminishing place. returns. Like we've taken economics classes. So yeah, you know, you see the graphs and yeah. you see the, the supply demand curve and like how adding inputs reduces over time or reduces the outputs over time. Just, just the, I guess that with, if you think about diminishing returns, there's a natural ceiling to it. And if you think about compound interest, there's a natural limitless to it. Yeah. So you have to think about uh, things kind of ramp, like almost like a ramp is what, is what compound interest I imagine mm-hmm. for people to visualize and, and, um, and, uh, diminishing returns is more of a um, like pl- like it, it kind of slopes up as a hill and into a plateau, and so mm-hmm. you have to realize that there's a natural ceiling with diminishing returns, and that there's a natural like no ceiling with compound interest. Yeah. Uh, another thing I haven't thought about this a, a lot, and in the future I, I want to think about it a bit more. But how this all relates to time and compound interest is very much related to time. Yeah, diminishing returns. I feel is a bit more related to effort, mm-hmm. but I think over like a twenty year time frame, there's probably some good insights that I I want to explore there. I think that you're right. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, thanks for tuning in. We enjoyed we enjoyed having you and talking together. <laughs> yeah, you guys are really talkative. <laughs> yeah, um, where, us out on Instagram, where can they find us? Twitter at living every now is our website. Thirty one percent done. Um, Discord That's, link in the bio. That might be worse percentage than last time we talked last about it. Last time it was 30% done. Oh, okay. So 30, we got progress. Okay, nice, dude. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friend, neighbor, mom, uh, sister, brother, and or cousin. Oh, well, it was fun. Thanks for doing this, Jake. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>